arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. Here at Niagara Falls, 150,000 gallons per second pours over the top. Four of the five Great Lakes of North America empty into the Niagara River and pour over the top of these falls into Lake Ontario to the north. As the water crashes over the top, all of the potential energy is converted into kinetic energy and comes down with tremendous force. Engineers knew that they could create a lot of electrical power with this. But the key challenge was not in creating the power, but in distributing it. This is truly awesome. We can see the nearly 170-foot drop. That's the same drop as the Niagara Falls themselves, but we're over a mile away from the falls. Where tunnels redirected water from the Niagara River down this huge drop, driving electricity-generating turbines. Science fiction within an earlier time period. That's what happens up at Niagara Falls. The power generation around Niagara Falls was and is extraordinary. Did I add a little imagination into the dimensional continuum around the power plant? Of course I did. I did. Suspend your disbelief, please. I wanted you to hear about the 170-foot drop from Niagara Falls. Keep that figure in mind should someone in this episode fall into the Niagara River. And it is the power generation warps that have brought Jamel's comrades back in time to this place. But then again, nothing ever goes like it should. And with the Avigis in the mix, avoiding and sometimes fighting these future alien beings is not the hot setup. Let's enjoy the adventure westward and the encounter, or I should say encounters, around Niagara Falls as Once in a Lifetime by Robert P. Fitton continues. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 19. Alf produced a bright green foam that hardened and fit the canisters perfectly. Before dawn, Charlie, carrying Gifford's brown checkered suitcase, followed Jamel down the exterior stairway from the flat overlooking Scully Square. Boston newspapers were crumpled into balls that kept the canisters stable inside the suitcase. Alf said the suitcase weighed 18 pounds. Charlie balanced the suitcase on his lap as Gifford drove them, Perkins and Ellery, back to the Boston airfield bordering the water. Gifford had no assurances from Colonial Airlines that the flight would even leave for New York City. His superiors demanded to question both Charlie and Jamel down in Washington, D.C., but Jamel's references about his boss prompted a revision of orders. Even with his bureau and other connections, Gifford had trouble making arrangements for the trip to New York City. Once outside the hangar, Jamel fell asleep against Charlie in the suitcases containing the neon. Charlie slowly spread the early edition over his legs, but caught sight of Gifford leaving the hangar. He sat up and pushed the paper aside. You reading the funnies, Russo? He held up the sports pages. Ruth hit another home run in the second game, Giff. He's got 47, two ahead of Garrick. Go, you Yankees. Well, whoopee. 
Everybody's hot about the babe and they forget about Lou Gehrig. How can you forget about the babe? Another thing, that'll teach Grantland Rice from knocking the Yankees. He predicted Philly would finish first. The boys on the street had New York, 3-1 to one odds. Hey, everybody's wrong at some point. 13 more to break his record. It's a long season, Russo. 13, huh? Giff, when this is over, I'll buy you a ticket to a game. If Ruth breaks his record, Russo, I'll buy you the ticket. Deal. Any luck in getting us on that plane? No, we're going to have to talk to the pilot. Colonial just started this service between Boston and New York. Beggars can't be choosers. Gifford walked over to Perkins, playing poker with Ellery near his car, a dozen yards away. Jamel opened her iridescent eyes and touched Charlie's wrist. She sat up and strapped Alf over her shoulder as Gifford started back. Charlie, did you call Herbie? No, not with Giff around. Plus, he hasn't even got us on the plane yet. With the Avegis in New York, we can't afford to be hanging around here. Charlie nodded. He folded the paper as he stood and helped her up. Giff, will you watch the bags? Why, where are you going? Phone. Well, who the hell are you calling, he said, standing at attention. Jamel folded her arms and grinned. We thought we'd call Mr. Hoover. Oh, real belly laughs. Gifford pointed inside the hangar. The phone is in the office past the planes. Then he walked with his hands in his pockets over to his agent and ordered Ellery to watch the bags. The larger man handed Gifford his cards, ambled to the opening, and positioned himself next to the suitcases. Hey, Charlie, my mother liked the game. Charlie looked over his shoulder as he headed along the planes inside. Good. Next time, bring Giff. Giants fan. John McGraw, Rogers Hornsby, he said, cupping his hands and whispering. He pointed at Gifford, hands still in his pockets, as he looked out at the Yunkers F-13 airplane out on the field. Charlie smiled and moved forward. When they were behind some of the older biplanes, Jamel opened Alf's case. She pushed a glowing red button under the screen. Elf, what do you hear? I've been scanning off radio stations along the East Coast. A few stations in New York report the Etor grenade's effects, but no one understands what happened. Where are the Avigis now? asked Charlie. They are at the Talbot Hotel in Manhattan. 761-779, 7th Avenue. So they're in Midtown, near Times Square, said Charlie. He leaned over as Elf spoke again. Still no mention of the tower. Nine of them in the city and one upstate. I can physically scan their Fiji's bodies in that hotel, but only when they change in and out of human form. And also, I can scan when they communicate to the other Fiji's back in the mountains. They communicate every 616 minutes. Not a smart thing to do, Jamel. 616 minutes. The length of an Avigi's day. Anything more about my flat? They are trying to find you and are speculating whether you flew out. If they don't know about the tower, said Jamel, I might be able to finish the transmitter and signal Sajion. And what about the babe, Alf? Come on, will he break his record? The babe's going to have to do this one himself, said Jamel, holding his wrist. I'm wondering if you should call Herbie at all. If they monitor the call, 
They could be at the tower waiting or even destroy the tower. Gifford watched them from across the hangar. Gift thinks he knows, but he doesn't. He and his bureau are no match for the Avigis. Charlie chuckled. And we are? The Junkers F-13, still on the runway, now warmed its engine and the sunlight reflecting on the aluminum crevices produced a bright glare. Charlie picked up the suitcases and moved with Jamel and Ellery from the hangar. Gifford and Perkins were already inside the airplane. They headed across the grass and were 20 feet from the wing when Elf produced a single loud beep. What's in that case anyways? asked Ellery. Excuse me one moment, she said, stepping back. Charlie stayed with Ellery as she ran back to the edge of the building. She set down the suitcase as she unfolded Elf's outer case near another plane. So, your mother's a Yankee fan, asked Charlie. Mother likes baseball. She got John McGraw's autograph once at a vaudeville show off-season. No kidding, said Charlie. Jamel had both hands to her temples and shook her head as she talked to Al. Excuse me, Ellery, I think Jamel is sick. We'll be right back. Ellery's voice faded as Charlie sprinted over to the other plane. Charlie, we can't go on that plane. Why not? What happened? Do you know something? The original Rara ship is still trying to break the continuum. Elf is monitoring it right now. You mean the first one, with your friends in it, and the archives? Elf spoke before she could answer. The Rara ship is being drawn toward western New York, toward Niagara Falls. She held Charlie's arm with her fingers. The archives, Charlie. If I have the archives, my friends and I can decrease the odds. The Sagians will fully understand the transmission. What if it's not your friends and it's another group of Avigis, he asked. Jamal shook her head as Ellery folded his arms back at the suitcases. No, there were only four ships. Three have survived. Elf, attempt to make contact. Nothing can be received until they actually break through. The Avigis in the Talbot Hotel would monitor any transmission between us and Yugis and Crispin. I need those archives. Charlie held her shoulders and his fingers sank into her back. I know the Avegis will do anything to destroy that rara ship. Elf, where is the rara ship right now? Near Buffalo, north before Lake Ontario, but they haven't broken the continuum. Charlie turned and gazed at the plane's spinning propeller. We sure as hell can't leave on this flight. Ellery had picked up the suitcases and rumbled across the concrete. Oh no, here comes Ellery. Charlie, we need to head west to the ship, not to New York. Well, I can get rid of Ellery, but why not just ask Gift to help us? Believe me, Mr. Gifford does not want to be involved in this, and I feel as though he'll have his bureau people waiting for us in New York City. What about your letter? Frankly, they can do nothing other than get in the way. I am concerned Yugis and Crispin haven't broken free. Something is wrong. Charlie turned to meet Ellery. Ellery! Giff is going to wonder where you are, said Ellery, setting down the suitcases, and I don't want to upset Giff. Tell Giff that Jamel is, uh, well, she's flight sick, stomach problems. She can't fly. We have to wait. She ate too much for breakfast. Can't eat and fly. Ellery's mouth turned down, and he removed his suit coat. 
Okay, I'll tell him. Jamal, they're heading to Penn Station. Seven of them have left the Talbot Hotel. The other two are still inside the suite. The one at Vigis Upstate is going to meet them along the route going west. But where are they going? said Charlie, leaning over. They're going to Buffalo. They're going after the ship, if it breaks through, said Jamel. Charlie took her hand and they rushed back to the office clerk, seated next to a little incandescent lamp. When they asked the clerk about flying to Buffalo, he adjusted his glasses and shook his head. Not yet. The Boston-New York route is all we have, sir. Commercial airline flights have just begun in the United States, Charlie, she said, shaking her head. We'll have to take the train. No. That guy Langley, said Charlie, snapping his fingers. The clerk leaned back in his chair and howled. Crazy Don! He came into town last night with his Vega. What a plane! Is he here? asked Charlie, looking at Jamel. Well, I don't think he's left yet. Charlie hauled the suitcases past a row of planes being serviced by several mechanics. Jamel walked ahead of him toward a long wooden building a few hundred yards from the hangar. He glanced back to the silver Junkers F-13, knowing Gifford would be off the plane now and be livid with Ellery for letting them leave. She opened the door and Langley's voice instantly boomed throughout the large room. Charlie marched along the green-painted lockers. A flyer in an orange flight suit and wind-blown dark hair had the attention of four or five other flyers around a wooden table. Ever hear of Vera Mae Dunlap's Flying Circus? Well, we had Gurney the Wing Walker and the Swing of Death. You were in that line? Me and Colonel Lindbergh? He was only a lieutenant then. He almost died when he was flying for the Army in Texas. Langley stroked his thick mustache. Locked right into some student pilot's plane. Had to jump. No parachute? Yeah, he had a parachute. You done night landings, Ling? Night, day, storms. If there was trouble, I was in the thick of it. That got the rest of them laughing. Langley lifted up his metal coffee cup as Charlie neared the table and pointed. I know you. You're too young to have been in the war. We met you in New York. Ah, and now you need old Langley to fly you somewhere. You are the people looking for that neon gas. We need you to fly us to Buffalo, said Charlie. Langley choked on the coffee. <laughs> Buffalo? Buffalo? They want to go to Buffalo, Woody. You think the Vega can make it, Lang? Asked the blonde-haired pilot. Langley stood and banged his cup on the table, and then moved his index finger over his thumb as he smiled. For a little scratch, the Vega will go to Paris, Montsauer. But you see, there's this one big problem, fellas. I already have people who paid in full. They're going to Maine. Charlie walked around the table. Langley, this is important. Yeah, so's the 50 bucks in my pocket. Ain't no way I'm going to leave people in Boston. No way. My reputation would be ruined, buckaroo. Charlie reached around in his pocket and took out another 500 bucks and unrolled the bills one at a time. Langley's eyes opened up and he grabbed the roll. Well, when do you want to leave? Now. Langley looked at the guys at the table and picked up his coffee cup and gulped the contents. Lang, those people in Maine are having breakfast, said Woody. Aren't you going to tell them? I ain't going to tell them nothing, said Langley, dipping into his pocket. Here, here's their 50 bucks and five for you, Woody. See you guys at the next stop. 
Langley scampered across the room and scooped up the suitcases. Charlie looked at Jamel. Langley, there's a little complication. Ah, here we go. Always the complication. Jamel moved closer and spoke in a lower voice. We have agents from the Bureau of Investigation that want to bring us to New York City. Langley admitted a noise halfway between belching and speaking. If you say so, said Charlie. Hey, if I thought you guys had a serious problem, I like trouble. You two stay right here. I'll get those cases on the Vega and come back and get you. And then we'll shuffle off to Buffalo. He kicked the door open and disappeared outside. Charlie faced Jamel again. He's nuts. Yeah, but I bet he gets us to Buffalo. Mid-morning, the Vega bounced and pitched, and Langley howled as they finally rose over the rippling Atlantic waters. Outside the tiny window, Charlie saw Gifford standing with Perkins near the hangar opening below. Ellery's in big trouble, said Charlie. Oh, he has a lot of explaining to do. Hey, we saw Lindbergh leave from Roosevelt Field, Lang. Langley moved the controls, and the plane banked steeply, pressing Charlie against Jamel. Whirlwind J-5C. What's that, said Charlie, his stomach spinning? That engine. That's the engine, whispered Jamel. 200 horse. Light and simple cooling system. Lindbergh is quick. Lightning reflexes. But Charlie Lawrence designed the engine. The damn thing didn't overheat, did it? Made it all the way to Paris, said Charlie. Nine cylinders around, nine cylinders around the crankcase. Hey, how'd you know that? You'd be surprised what she knows, said Charlie. Jamel spoke over the buzzing engine as Langley maneuvered the stick, and the plane soared toward the puffy clouds. She spoke louder. Didn't consume as much gasoline because the cylinders spread the thermal energies at a more efficient coefficient. Even the actual fuel was inexpensive and leaner. Langley seemed to be taken aback by her knowledge and nodded his head. Well, shit! Didn't he almost hit a barn going out? Wires, said Charlie, looking over the city. Jamel stared back at Boston and the river dissecting the city buildings. But Charlie thought about those beings heading to Penn Station back in New York. He figured, as he stroked his chin, better than even odds now that he and Jamel had the advantage of traveling by plane. He was lucky he even got off the ground all that fuel on board, said Langley. Damn lucky, and I don't know how he stayed awake. How long would it take to get to Buffalo, Lang? asked Charlie. Langley leveled the plane and they were high over the river. Charlie, we have to refuel. Right now I'm heading for Springfield, Massachusetts, then maybe Pittsfield, Albany, New York, and Rochester. Time down for checking the Vega. Look at that beautiful engine, will you? I don't know how long it'll take to get to Buffalo. Jamel grinned and held Charlie's arm as she whispered in his ear again. The Vega has a special engine designed to reduce drag. Charlie shrugged his shoulders and peered at the land, moving a thousand feet below the plane. He gazed to the south, and although he could not see as far as New York, he tried to imagine the Avigis at Penn Station in their human form boarding the train. Seven beings would be heading north to destroy that rarer ship when it popped through the continuum. Foremost, he thought as he studied Langley toothpick now sticking through his mustache, was that they had to arrive first and somehow retrieve the archives from the ship. Langley knew everyone from the mechanics to the cooks at the small airfield in Springfield, Massachusetts. Charlie had trouble getting him away from his stories and back on the plane. 
As he carried open boxes filled with sandwiches and soda pop to the plane, he saw Jamel leaning over Alf in the back of the Vega. He crawled in the front seat and set the box on the floor. Alf's magenta light covered her face as she slowly sat up. They are on a train heading west. I don't know whether we can get to the ship first. Charlie turned when he heard Langley's voice outside. The pilot talked to several mechanics and headed toward the plane. What about the rarer ship? Odd. Something, some force is stopping that ship from emerging into this time and space. Aviges? Jamel looked up, shut off Alf, and closed the case. No, I think Alf would have monitored any transmission from western New York or sensed them in their Aviges form. We're both baffled. Outside, Langley flipped up the engine cover, and as the mechanics gathered around the outside, he bragged about his new airplane. Problem, Lang? asked Charlie. Langley moved around to the open door. Just routine. We'll be back up in a few minutes. You got the ham and cheese? Got it. With pickles? With pickles, said Charlie. And coffee? I've got the whole order, Lang, said Charlie, smiling. The engine cover slammed down, and Langley shook hands with the men. He ran around to his door. Everything okay, Lang? I always check before I go up. Sometimes I even circle the airfield. Well, you can't be an ace without a sound aircraft, said Charlie. Yeah, he said, starting the engine. Purrs like a kitten. Langley, let me ask you something. He yelled at the men heading back. Hey, I'll see you guys at the next stop. Then he turned to Charlie. What do you want to know? The train leaves Penn Station in New York at the same time we leave Boston. Who will get to Buffalo first? Langley checked the gauges and stroked his chin. Well, now ain't this getting interesting. What's in Buffalo, pot of gold? Charlie secured the door and Langley moved forward away from the hangar and over the grass. So you want to get to Buffalo before the train, is that it? We have to get to Buffalo before the train. Well, my friend, he said, gaining speed, and his voice shook with the plane over the bumpy ground. I'd say we should be able to do it. Charlie took out another hundred-dollar bill. Hmm, odds are getting better, Charlie, my son. When he did not take the bill, Charlie leaned over. We'll pay you whatever you want, Lang. The Vega will do 135, but I don't need the C-note. The plane lifted into the air and floated across the air currents. Charlie looked outside as they skimmed a wide, winding river toward the hills and a range to the north. He smiled when Langley let out another wah-whoop. I thought you only flew for money, Lang. He spoke over the humming engine. I fly for the challenge, buckaroo. Sometimes money comes with the challenge. Has for me. He put a fresh toothpick in his mouth and wiggled his mustache. Charlie stared at the red skin along his face and neck. Right now, old Lang is racing that train. Once in a Lifetime Chapter 20 The wind ruffled the tree leaves outside the airfield's mess shack. With every wind gust, the exterior tar paper buzzed against the shingles. Charlie held the early edition tightly with both hands, but he gradually closed his eyes and leaned against Jamel. Sleeping on the plane would be impossible, not because of the storms over in New York, but because he could not stop thinking about the Aviges finding the Rara ship first. In Albany, Alf reaffirmed that the Rara ship's position 
was around Niagara Falls, but still locked in continuum. Jamal explained that even if they stood next to the ship, they would not see it. Unless they could penetrate the continuum, they would never retrieve the archives. Alf's leather case shook with an urgent beep. Charlie opened his eyes. The sun's rays pushed through the clearing storm clouds to the east, but the breezy air cooled his face. Jamal quickly opened the case and the screen ignited with a colorful map of New York and Pennsylvania. A blinking green dot on the red background indicated the speeding locomotive on a course to Rochester near their present location at the airfield. Upriver from the falls, the stuck rare ship blinked a fuzzy orange. There are only 40 miles outside of Rochester, said Alf. That makes eight of them heading west. We are in serious danger. They will kill us without remorse. Well, they'll have to find us first, said Charlie. I know. Let's face it, Jamel. It doesn't matter if we land before they arrive. I think we need to get to a hotel in Niagara Falls and figure out what we're going to do. She crossed her arms as she stood and looked toward the clearing skies. I wonder if they know we're right here. Unlikely. I haven't transmitted anything, and I'm at a low power output. She looked down at the case. Elf, there's no way the first rarer ship would be held up in the continuum. I just can't figure it out. I don't know why. There has to be a reason, said Charlie, as Langley hollered from the plane. Come on, let's go! Jamal pushed off the main power switch. The system on Sagian took the rarer ship back through time, like a rolling sphere down a smooth, unobstructed track downhill. The rarer ship was impelled back through a subfusual compression continuum time tunnel to a predetermined point in place and time. Like a sphere, it has to roll to its ending point and it emerges subfusually into this dimensional universe. It's all so simple, said Charlie as they crossed the grass toward the plane. Jamel pushed off the main power switch. You're overlooking the obvious. Something is stopping the ball from rolling to the bottom. And I just have to figure out what that is. Langley leaned out the fly window. Hey, buckaroos, you ready to head back into the wild blue yonder again? How much longer to the falls, Lang? asked Charlie. He moved the toothpick around his teeth as they stepped into the red and white plane. Hard to say, you know. I've been wondering about you two. Langley, you really want to know about us? asked Jamel. Charlie took a seat as Langley started the propellers. Thinking of backing out, Lang? Hell no! With neon, brand new hundred dollar bills, and somebody falling in the trains. You're right, I don't want to know. I might even get you over the Genesee River near the Eastman Kodak Company. Yeehaw! Charlie grinned and settled back in the seat. He believed the plane's superior airspeed would get them to the falls in advance of the westward traveling train, but he did not fully understand how she would extricate her friends. It could take Jamel some time, or it might not even happen. Langley wound the plane around the field, revved the engine to an ear-piercing crescendo, and waved to the mechanics as the Vega rumbled down the grass. When they had first left Boston, Charlie had imagined himself as Lindbergh. Now, as they lifted and floated upward, he gazed at the rails, stretching east across the rolling countryside. Somewhere down those tracks, a train carried beings from another world and time, 
bent on destroying the Rara ship and its extensive archives. As he turned, fog pockets dissipated and the warming sun across the farm fields and the huge blue expanse above the shoreline of Lake Ontario. On this summer morning in A.D. 1927, the east coast of the United States of America awakened with no realization of the accelerating events of space and time and the fight for the future civilization about to take place in western New York State. Jamel studied Al Screen as Langley started singing war songs, including the sixth rendition of Mademoiselle from Armandier. For close to an hour, Charlie had searched for the falls, but he had only spotted more farmland. He crawled back with Jamel. Hey, no monkey business back there, said Langley between stanzas. Lang, you know how discreet we are, said Charlie, and he leaned over Al's open case, speaking in a lower voice. Where are they? I estimate it will take six hours. It'll take that long just to formulate the readings around the Rara ship, let alone figure out how to open the continuum. We need weapons, Jamel. She looked up, her smooth skin wrinkled at the brow, and surprisingly, she nodded her head. She sank back in the seat, the plane dipped, and Langley let out a war cry. There they are! There they are! The falls? asked Charlie. The Great Niagara, my son. In the distance, Charlie saw a wide river spread across the flattened plateau and the hint of white foam on the horizon's edge. Heck, you've been everywhere, Lang. Ain't never been up here, Charlie, old buddy. This is a first for old Lang. Charlie smiled and put his arm around Jamel near the window. Tremendous power, tremendous power. Who knows what awaits us down there, he said, panning a small city past the American Falls. She looked up. That's what frightens me. The furious river widened as the prodigious green and white tinted water tonnage surged over the curved Horseshoe Falls. The water connected with the river below and produced a rising mist into the morning air. On Elf's screen, a graphic depiction of the Niagara Basin showered the water in blue, and numerous readings, according to Jamel, indicated the actual amount of energy generated over the gorge. A clean orange trail swept across time directly toward the Niagara River, and a flashing purple dot depicted the Rara ship still trapped within the continuum just upstream. They're somewhere along the river, said Jamel. I don't understand this. In the afternoon sun, the vast and powerful waterway split and roared into a misty chasm. As Langley buzzed the falls, Charlie hid his arms. What are you going to do, Lang? Be the first plane to go over the falls? Yeehaw! He looped upward and flew through the gorge. People on both sides pointed at the plane. Oh, Mother McCree, said Charlie, holding his heart. Jamel leaned over his shoulders. I've seen old images of this era. People would get married and spend time up here on a honeymoon. Is that the term? This is no honeymoon, said Charlie. They'll find me and a toothpick floating upstream. She grinned, holding his arm as the plane pitched. Langley continued his performance and tilted down at a steep angle, enjoying the faster movement. Jamel, unfettered by the abrupt descent, looked at Charlie, holding the seat as Langley pretended to lose control. But the vega leveled over the gushing water above the Horseshoe Falls. Charlie lived in the heart of New York City with all its complexity and magnitude, yet he had never witnessed such raw power. 
playing near a grassy L-shaped stretch in the woods away from the river and to the west of the railroad tracks. Langley fiddled with the controls and they floated forward, catching the ground with a thud, and then they raced across the field. The Great Niagara, he shouted and slowed the plane, and then steered toward a group of buildings, including an elongated gray metal hangar. He maneuvered closer to the hangar and taxied with a number of other crafts along a wood fence and a dirt road leading from the airfield. The propeller slowed and spun as Langley turned. How about some chow, buckaroos? Charlie held his stomach as he rolled outside. Maybe I'll just hold off on it for a while. Suit yourself. Where are we? She asked. We're at the Consolidated Aircraft Airport. You going into the hangar, Lang? Yeah. See if I know anybody. You probably do, said Jamel. How long you guys planning to be up here? Again, I won't ask what you're going to be doing. Charlie smiled and lit a lucky. He inhaled and tossed the match into the dirt. That's good because we don't know what we're doing. Damn, I've been living by the seat of my pants for 37 years, said Langley, opening the door, and he faced the hangar as he got outside. I'll see what I can do for grub. Your gut will settle down in a few minutes. Jamal opened Alf's case once Langley jaunted over to the hangar. Readings provided more detailed information now. A new depiction showed varying energy levels for the Rara ship along the river. The last of Aegis transmission, midway across the state, indicated they were in communication with the Aegis in New York City. They'll be heading right for those readings, said Charlie. He focused down the long dirt road back to the city and then studied the map on Elf's screen. A few miles upriver, Jamel nodded and gripped the machine's case. Elf, what do you make of this? I have no explanation as to why the ship is suspended up the river. Charlie stroked his chin, sorted through his thoughts, and tried to arrange everything in a logical order. Elf, what does this area have that other areas might not have? A large onslaught of water pushing over the escarpment at an unusually strong rate. This is the 20th century, bud. We generate our electricity differently than you do. What are you saying, asked Jamel. I'm saying that what I learned from my high school physics classes, turbines produce fields. Maybe they couldn't come out of the continuum because the fields somehow trapped them. Jamel thrust her fists into the air and then embraced him. Of course, that's it. Charlie, you're a genius. I've been told that. Charlie's smile broke apart. Wouldn't the Avigis figure that out too? Well, Elf and I didn't. Charlie, you had the advantage of knowing this error but I would not underestimate the Avigis. I will assume that they will find these answers too. Okay, but how do we get your friends out of this invisible continuum? Getting trapped to the rare ship presents an intriguing problem. Alf and I will have to calculate the field's intensity and then surgically cut into the continuum. Why not just stop the turbines, eliminate the field, and let the ship pop out? Elf's familiar voice filled the cabin. Removing the field might keep the ship trapped in the continuum forever. Well, that's not good. No ship, no archives, no archives, no specific knowledge radioed out for the Sagians from the Rumford building. I would say that sums it up, said Jamel, kissing his forehead. You figured it out. I knew your knowledge was essential. Just call me Einstein, said Charlie, opening the other door. Einstein began the process, she said, as he took her hand and helped her outside. That led to the rarest ship traveling back here. So did Tesla. 
but he disappeared into history. The falls echoed in the gritty haze like a never-ending cascade explosion several miles away. Langley stood in the hangar doorway, babbling to some of the mechanics. They would need him to fly back to New York as soon as they retrieved the archives, unless the Avegis performed the trick first. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 21, Tuesday, September 13, 1927. Theory seems simple. But whether they could extricate the rarest ship from the turbine fields on Plant 6 on the Niagara River might prove difficult. According to Jamel, an intricate set of adjustments, realigned particles, and a strong beam would be necessary to pull out the ship. Avigis' radio transmissions had ceased, and ALF could no longer monitor the beings. Even as Jamel worked tirelessly on the rarest ship problem, the Avigis must have reached the city. Charlie waited with Jamel for the cab outside the Cleveland Hotel. As the busy traffic passed behind him, he marveled at the detailed panels between the hotel windows all the way up to the well-defined cornice twenty floors above. Through the wider lobby windows, a line of people formed at the hotel's main desk, but he now scrutinized anyone standing there as a possible Avigis. He had just placed the suitcases, one containing the neon, in the long storage bin located in a room behind the desk. As he looked down the sloping street back to the river, he lit a lucky and exhaled. Jamal squeezed his hand but said nothing as a cream-colored taxi looped around the hotel. She set Alf on the smooth bench seat as Charlie helped her inside. He took a drag on the cigarette but stared at every customer at the fruit and vegetable tables outside the grocery store across the street. The cab quickly merged into traffic and traveled block by block through the city. They crossed the river to the Canadian side. Although they were only surveying the area near the plant, Charlie knew that the signals to Sajin meant nothing without first ripping out the rarest ship's archives. Veering away from the falls, the cab moved under a tree-lined road. In the distance, atop a wooded bluff, a tiny guard shack permitted entry into the massive brick building. A green chain-link fence surrounded the plant. Charlie paid the driver and gave him another buck with instructions that he return in an hour. Then he followed Jamal between the trees, less than a few hundred yards from the fence. Ahead, dozens of silver towers and side supports topped with nubby power grids were connected by thick, rigid wires extending along the riverbanks toward the cities on the east coast. Getting in there is only one problem, shouted Jamel, competing with the pervasive falls roar not too far away. Then how do we find the ship? Just ask them where it is, quipped Charlie. She grinned and peered through the trees toward the fence. Fence isn't that high, but they must have guards. Charlie tossed the cigarette onto the moist ground. Why not ask for a tour? Tour? Yeah. Call up the plant. Tell them we're here on a honeymoon, he said. She tilted her head and smiled. People tour industrial plants all the time, Jamel. Once we're in there, we play it by ear. By ear? He tugged gently on her ear, and they continued along the riverbank. Alf scanned the outside grounds beyond the fence, and when they were near the front gate, but still hidden by the trees, Charlie turned to her. Listen, I'm going to assume the Avigis are here in the city, and I'm going to assume they will travel up here too. Oh, they will. You can count on that. 
Okay, what would they do? He asked, stepping over some brush toward a huge spreading tree. The plant entrance and parking lot materialized through the foliage ahead. Charlie looked up. One hell of a tree. On this hill are black walnut and an assortment of sycamore maples. The Nordman fir is an evergreen in the area. Thanks, Elf. Elf, concerning Charlie's original observation about assuming the Vigis would be up here too, my question to both of you is what would they do? Try to enter the facility, said Elf. They probably would not be as clever as Charlie. Thank you, Elf. They might force their way into the plant. Charlie leaned against the tree and lit another Lucky. He blew out a cloud of smoke and held a cigarette in his hand as he leaned toward her. I would think they'd just be waiting to see what you're going to do, Jamel. They'll assume you'll be coming up here, too. So why not just allow you to do all the work? I agree to that, too. We need to defend ourselves against them. We really do need guns. You saw what happened on Sajian when an Avigis implodes. We risk dying in such an implosion, unless we're undercover. I don't want to fall like the little ducks at the Coney Island shooting gallery, except I'd be dodging Etor beams. If anyone can dodge an Etor beam, Charlie, you can. Langley, content to stay at the airfield and fly the planes of his newfound friends, took a call from Charlie two days later and did not seem rattled by the request for weapons. A surprise Charlie answered the phone when Langley called back to the hotel less than five minutes later. He had expedited the purchase of a half a dozen small handguns and ammunition boxes. Langley laughed, asking no further questions as Charlie promised him extra cash. Jamel lay on the sofa and held a copy of Time magazine she had purchased in the lobby earlier. Charlie leaned down and looked at the cover. September 5th. This week's issue should be coming out. Who's on that cover? She flipped the magazine over. Devereaux Milburn? The same to you, lady. Then he kissed her. Who is Devereaux Milburn? United States polo team. What is that, like baseball? Bunch of hoity-toities like the Rumfords plopping around on horses hitting a ball around with a mallet. Kind of odd. He sat on the couch and checked his watch. What else is in there? Aeronautics. American Railway Express Company. President Robert E. M. McCurry of the company last week published his flying express rates between 26 express air stops. Things are accelerating now, Charlie. The world is changing. Where the heck is Langley? He asked as he stood. Science. Tank phones. Hmm. Sacco aftermath. 5,000 people during their funeral. This is a volatile time. General Motors passed the $1 billion mark. Look at the assets of United States corporations, she said. All for naught, said Alf, and her eyes opened behind the magazine. What does he mean by that? Just a lot of money, that's all. Several swift knocks on the door sent Charlie scampering across the carpet. Who is it? Oh, come on, Charlie, don't start with that baloney, said Langley behind the wood panels. Good, he said, and he opened the door quickly. Jamel, having worked for 48 hours, had just finished calculating the turbine field numbers on Alf's screen and stood at the window table. Hey, the lap of luxury here, said Langley, dressed in a blue flight suit. He saluted and then gawked at the huge room's ornate ceilings and smooth satin wallpaper. 
He set a small crate on the thick wool rug. You want a room, Lang? asked Jamel as she set down the magazine. I ain't a hotel type of guy. Just put me on a cot or on the floor, and I'll see you at the next stop. Langley walked over to the window and glanced at Alf's case, and then peered over the city toward the falls. Lang, said Charlie. He moved with Jamel near the tall red drapes. We're having dinner downstairs. Why don't you join us? Have something other than those cans of food back at the airfield, added Jamel. Nah, he turned from the window. When are we moving out, anyway? You need more money, asked Charlie. Hell, I can always use more money. Charlie reached into his wallet and handed more bills to the pilot. He tucked the wad in his flight suit side pocket. Much obliged. Jamel, still at the window, spoke to Langley. Look, Lang, to answer your question, we may have to leave here in a hurry. The Vega is as fit as a fiddle. You just get on the horn and let me know, Jamel. As a fiddle? she asked, smiling at the window. Yes, ma'am. Sure you won't join us. Charlie, confidentially, me and the boys, we got a card game tonight. Charlie grinned. I could use a good card game myself. Well, go with him, Charlie. I've done my calculations. There's nothing we can do till we get that tour. Langley looked at the wood crate. Jamel, guy just had me bring guns over here. Let me tell you something. I've been playing the good old country boy while you two play with that fancy radio case over there. Damn, I don't care what you're doing. You're talking to a guy who flew the Sopworth pup over the skies of France. I remember the fear on the boys' faces before they went up, because they knew they might not be coming back. They tried to hide it, but you could see it after you'd been in a few dogfights. You two have that same look. Stay with her, Charlie. Don't ever leave her. He turned and the door shut quietly behind him as he left. Five calls to the power plant failed to locate the plant manager, and he had the final say about touring the plant. They decided to dress for dinner, as nothing more could be done until tomorrow. Jamel strapped Elf over a lightweight almond green flock and a matching red-ribbed velveteen hat, accentuating her tight, freckled face. Charlie had a fully loaded Smith & Wesson placed in a holster strapped over his printed broadcloth shirt. He wore a blue coat and a flashier light blue tie. Once at the second-floor restaurant, she panned the upper mezzanine and lobby. Charlie tried to forget about the killer beings and called over Mr. Balfour. He had developed a rapport with the restaurant manager during the last two days. As Balfour set the late addition onto the table, he put his hand on Charlie's shoulder. Looks as though your Yankees will clinch the pennant tomorrow, Charlie. Charlie winked at Jamel. Then what am I going to worry about? Perhaps the Dempsey-Tunney rematch? Jamel must have known the outcome. Who's going to win? Jack? Well, it won't be a boring fight, she said. You can hear it on the radio, just like everyone else. Well, I want Jack to take it back. Balfour did not understand the knowledge Jamel possessed. He opened the newspaper to the movie listings and a Laurel and Hardy release called Sugar Daddies. May I suggest a funny film? As funny as Buster Keaton on that train? asked Charlie. Oh, the general, yes, yes. Laurel and Hardy will become very famous, whispered Jamel. Really? Charlie looked down at the advertisement. 1463 Cleveland Ave. What do you say, Jamel? Let's go see the movie. She touched his wrist. What about our other friends? Charlie spoke from the corner of his mouth. 
Just a thought, but I don't think they'll spend the night at the movies watching Laurel and Hardy. And we can't do anything until we get that plant manager on the horn. We'll slip into a taxi. Balfour smiled as he looked down at the paper. The funhouse scene at the end is hilarious. Anyway, the theater is exactly five blocks from the hotel. Enjoy if you can. Charlie tore out the ad and tucked it in his pocket. He thanked Balfour, and the manager excused himself. He returned along the mezzanine railing. Jamel rubbed her eyes. We have to get in that plant tomorrow morning. Just go over and find the manager. We can't afford to wait any longer. I agree, but after we eat, let's get out of here. They emerged laughing from the lobby of the little brick theater. Charlie lit a lucky and just kept laughing. He held his arm securely around her waist and looked beyond the river railing to the misty basin below. The gargantuan water sheets were bathed in an artificial light. He had become accustomed to the all-pervasive roar. He giggled when Jamel slowly turned to him in the dim light. Well, you're certainly taking the situation lightly, she said, evidencing a smile. No, I was just thinking about Laurel on thin shoulders, dressed as a as a seven-foot-high lady with a dress coat. They made it out of the hotel, said Charlie, all the way to the funhouse with those barrels. Maybe we should use that disguise, Charlie. I worry about simply walking about. He brought her along the railing. Don't worry, we look like a couple just married. Oh, did you like that, Jamel? She smiled and stared at the scalloped horseshoe falls. Then she nodded. Maybe when this is over, we'll get out of New York. Unless you're going back on the Rara ship. Her eyes moistened and she focused on the mist. I've studied this era and like it, but I left my world behind. I can't go back. They shuffled hand in hand along the rail toward the horseshoe falls. I'm sorry. No, don't be. He pulled her head close to his chest as the mist cooled his face. I never thought I'd want to leave New York, but I'm ready to go home to Ohio. Ever watch the sunset across a cornfield? The orange light spreading over the rows to the horizon? Sounds peaceful. Why did you go to New York City of all places, Charlie? Ambition. Pure and simple. I wanted to rise to the top. Misplaced ambition can cause problems. Ain't that the God's honest truth? But I thought I was like Teddy Ward in that resort. You know the movie? He brings the resort out of nowhere with an advertising campaign. Which one was that? Called Fascinating Youth from last year. I saw it with Francine. She wasn't too happy that I thought Thelma Todd was swell in that movie. Alf beeped and Jamel looked inside his case. Her face, bathed in magenta light, tightened as Charlie continued. I recognized her from one of the movie star magazines, and Francine was livid. Jamel's brow furrowed, and she had tears in her eyes. I see. What's the matter? The Avigis? No, no, nothing. Charlie tried to look inside Elf's case, but she shook her head. Something about Thelma Todd? Jamel smacked her lips. Charlie, I can't let you see the future. It must evolve as it evolves. He glanced at Elf's case again. I understand. Maybe there are some things I just don't want to know. She nodded and Charlie veered to a small concession and bought a box of colored taffy. He unwrapped the paper and stuffed a green candy in her mouth. This is how people used to lose their teeth. Enjoy the taffy, Jamel. He squished a red one between his teeth and smiled. They moved along the falls and the water rushed by them only a few dozen feet away. Live for the moment. 
That's my new motto. I think you said it yourself. She slowly turned and looped her arms around him. She gently tugged his ear. Listen, if something happens to me, Charlie, go on with your life. Nothing is going to happen. We'll bring your friends out of the railroad ship, get the archives, and have old Langley fly us all back to the city. Personally, I think the Avigis are all chumps. Chump? Chump, a term used for patrons of carnivals, or even the show we saw in Boston. Well, what do they know about 1927? I say we outfox them. I agree. They don't know anything about the Earth of 1927, but they process information five times faster than you or I. They can crush you with their hands and change form, and they have etor beams. Nah, I've seen ball teams that have everything. Like your Yankees? No. You can have the best hitters or guys that can hurl the ball faster than anyone else. But unless you bring it all together and make it work, it doesn't mean a thing. Her smile drifted away as they faced the horseshoe falls. In 12 hours, we may be inside the plant. Alf has heard nothing since the Avegis were on the train. But they have to be here in Niagara Falls. They have to know about Plant 6 on the Niagara. He stepped in front of her and waved his hands. Wait, 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 wait. Jamal, there's one other thing about a winning ball club like the Yankees. What's that? No matter what, every one of those guys, when they show up at the ballpark, they all know they're going to win. They know it. And they do. This is the greatest baseball team of all time. Once in a Lifetime, Chapter 22. While he waited for the clerk, Charlie paced the floral rug, hugging the oak-paneled main lobby. According to Jamel, the neon's temperature had to remain stable. She sat in a high-back red chair next to a matching sofa and slate coffee table. She held a movie magazine with Clara Bow on the cover and the same type of movie magazine Francine had frowned upon. She had called plant number six earlier and spoke directly with the manager, a cordial man who agreed to let them tour the plant. Sir, said the mustached little clerk in the brown suit. He adjusted his red silk pocket handkerchief as Charlie approached the front desk. Sir, we have the rear room open for you. Oh, good. He nodded at Jamel and she put down the movie magazine. Do I need to show you identification? Sir, you're a guest here at the Cleveland. We know who you are. Jamal joined him up front with Alf strapped over her shoulder. The room is open? Yes, miss, it is. Please, meet me at the side door. Charlie placed his hand on her back as they walked around the desk and the clerk opened the wood panel door. Right this way. They were led down a narrow corridor past oak mailboxes and into a long room with wide shelves and a glass globe lamp on a chain. The suitcases were still on the bottom shelf when they neared the back wall. Charlie unzipped the suitcase as the clerk stood outside. Jamel checked Alf's readings and then nodded. There's a very slight increase in temperature. The sooner we get back to New York, the better. How long are they good for? A tolerance of three degrees on the Celsius scale. Charlie stared at the leather case. Well, that's not very much. Can you insulate them better, Alf? We do not have nano-sealing agents in this time period. That would leave no temperature gain. Then I suggest, bud, that we get our fannies in gear. Fannies? asked Alf as Jamel looped his strap over her shoulder. I have a Fanny Bryce from this time period. I have Fanny Crosby. I have Fanny Farmer. Ah, Fanny, your derriere. 
you mean to get moving? He learns fast, said Charlie, as he thanked the clerk and gave him a buck for the tip and stepped into the lobby. I, I need to get to an area of the plant where the rarer ship is suspended in the field that's created by the electrical turbines. He escorted her through the revolving brass door, acknowledged one of the doormen in his maroon and gray uniform, and then stepped under the curb. Can I get you a cab, sir? said the bellman, twirling his dark wax mustache. Thank you, she said, as he moved onto the street and raised his arm. Charlie, consumed by the escalating tension, looked for the Avigis at the corner and inside the cars and truck. He even checked behind the adjacent buildings. How would he spot these creatures in human form with their jerky movements and their awkward mannerisms? He tipped the bellman as they got into a black cab, and he leaned toward the little driver with the ski nose and the missing front tooth. Plant number six, across the river. We're going on a tour. Hey, I heard them tours are educational. Charlie caught his blue eyes in the mirror. Was this guy really human? Who's in first place in the American League right now? The guy half smiled. Well, I, I ain't a baseball fan. What? Everybody and his brother knows the Yanks are in first, especially here in New York. Where were you born? What? Where the hell were you born? Charlie? The driver looked at Charlie and then at Jamel in the mirror. Schenectady, what's it to you? Charlie lit a lucky. Nothing. Sorry I asked, bud. He nodded and she opened her eyes wide and she whispered, I'll let you know when I see an Avigis. He opened his coat and lifted the Smith & Wesson from the holster strapped to his shirt. She turned with a distant look on her face and stared out the window as the cabbie drove them through the city streets. At the falls, the prodigious volume of water created a slushy surf and ubiquitous roar. A rising mist lingered above a chasm that separated the linear American Falls and the carved Canadian side. Churning whirlpools and powerful eddies surged toward the same inevitable end over the escarpment. He turned to Jamel. You get caught in that mess and you're all done. She grinned for a second before she spoke. You get caught in there and you're a chump. The three separate sections of the imposing brick structure appeared on the hill above the riverbank. Trees and underbrush shielded the plant from the main road, and the chain-link fence surrounding the grounds could hinder any escape. Inside the main building, with the spinning turbines, the elusive energy field beyond Charlie's minimal understanding held the Rara ship, with Jamel's friends, inside the continuum. He paid the taxi driver and stepped into the parking lot. At the guard shack, a dog-faced man, half-shaven and wearing a blue security uniform, stomped out his cigarette. He sniffed loudly, wiping his nose with his handkerchief as he moved forward. What do you want? Jamel stepped ahead. We talked by phone to the plant manager, Mr. Robertson, for about a tour. The lines deepened on his wrinkled skin as if he were perpetually annoyed, and his gruff delivery upset Charlie. I don't know nothing about no tour. Who'd you talk to? She glanced at Charlie. I said I talked to a Mr. Robertson. He didn't say nothing to me. Now scram, both of you. Charlie wasted no time in confronting the guard. Hey, bud, the lady said she talked to Robertson. I'm sure you can speak to a woman with better manners. The guard looked uncomfortable with Charlie so close. He wiped his nose again and returned to the shack. He talked with someone on the wall phone, and less than a minute later, he waved them by. Then he approached a slow-moving, shiny, blue-toned Ford sedan. Who's he yelling at now? Charlie asked. They climbed the cement stairs and opened the green-framed glass mesh door. He glanced at the blue sedan turning in the parking lot before he followed Jamel into the front lobby. 
A hunched-over woman with a compressed face and beady eyes sat in a paisley dress behind a little wooden desk. She read a photoplay magazine with a picture of a brunette with a bitten apple in her hand. Who's the dame? asked Charlie. I've seen her before. She managed a lip smile that pushed her eyes into slits. Olive Borden. Charlie snapped his fingers and pointed. Oh, with George O'Brien last year. Three bad men, now I remember. The large woman motioned Charlie forward with her little fingers. I read that she just bought a custom-built Lincoln with a convertible top last July. It's the only one of its kind on the West Coast. Can you imagine? You don't say. Welcome to Plant 6. We're here for the tour, said Charlie. Mr. Robertson said we'd be showing the inner workings of the plant this afternoon. You two on your honeymoon? she asked and then giggled. Most are. No, just a couple of tourists, he said, thinking about the neon back at the hotel. Last year we had 652 people come through our plant. Can you imagine? No, ma'am, I can't. What about the tour? Yes, the tour. She pointed toward a gray-tiled hallway. Halfway down on your left is Mr. Robertson's office. Thank you. Robinson's rangy frame filled the chair behind his green metal desk. He stood, extending a lion-sized mitt to an unsuspecting Charlie. Good morning. Sorry I didn't get back to you sooner yesterday. Oh, that's okay, said Jamel, just over Charlie's shoulder. I called my foreman, Peter Miller, to show you around. Charlie panned at least a dozen black-and-white photos of the facility hanging on the wall. You know, I really never understood how a power plant operates. We're capable of generating 600,000 kilowatts. Of course, it's the pumping stations that step up the voltage. 132,000 volt to the transmission lines. We keep our tours out of the pumping stations. They all laughed. Charlie walked across the room and gazed up at the photos. Tell me about these pictures, Mr. Robertson. As Robertson shuffled across the room, Jamel lingered near a detailed blueprint on the back wall, cracked open Elf's case. Robertson spent several minutes describing the various locations and spewed out statistics, muddling Charlie's cluttered thoughts. A small man with a thin mustache entered the office. Ah, Peter! Jamel quickly shut Elf's case and faced them. Well, we know you're busy, Mr. Robertson. Thank you for taking the time to see two over-enthusiastic tourists. Not at all. Mr. Miller, show our visitors the plant. You enjoy yourself. Thank you, said Charlie. Miller motioned them into the corridor. The moment they were on the stairs, he spoke in a technical jargon that even Jamel, shrugging her shoulders, had trouble following. They emerged into an open area with turbines humming and a plethora of plant machinery noises. Charlie asked Miller diversionary questions requiring minutes to answer, allowing Jamel, as they marched past the mammoth turbines, to inconspicuously drift out of sight. Yes, those blue machines are indeed the turbines, Charlie, the heart of the power generation within this plant. I should note that this is one of several plants. Others are across the river. Power was first utilized here in 1879 for simple usage such as lighting the park. But commercial power, the actual selling of electrical production, commenced in 1881. So you guys, and I don't mean you personally, Mr. Miller, have been generating power up here for almost 50 years. Yes, that's true. The amount of power and the refinements in the equipment mark the differences between then and now. Charlie could no longer see Jamel. Oh, oh, 
Oh, he said loudly as they moved along. That is interesting. For the next 15 minutes, he listened to the history of Miller's career, thumbed through photographs of his wife and kids, and asked profound technical questions with no intention of understanding the answers. He moved from side to side to ease the queasiness in his stomach. Then Jamel walked nonchalantly out from the turbines. She gave him the turnstile wave as she joined them up front. Charlie exhaled loudly. This plant is impressive. Hydroelectric power would be non-existent up here without the International Naira Control Board. That was set up four years ago. Charlie looked at his watch and Jamel nodded. Well, Mr. Miller, now we work in conjunction with the Saratabek Niagara Generating Station Number 1 in Canada. The station is just two years old. We need to be getting back to the hotel, dear. Each country, dating back to our 1913 treaty, fixes the amount of water that can be diverted. Uh, we have to go, Mr. Miller. Even as he climbed the stairs, Miller provided the most minute plant details and geological history of the area. Once upstairs, Charlie asked about the restrooms, and Miller led them to a single room along the office hall. Charlie thanked him several times, shook hands, and the foreman headed down the stairs. Jamel whispered in his ear, We have to move now. Right now? She nodded, and he followed her to the stairwell. Alf located the ship. It's suspended around the turbine fields, just as you theorized, Charlie. But can you get inside? We can get inside. There's a storage room between the floors, ideal for opening up the fields. I'll bring Yugus and Crispin out, brief them, and then get the archives. Then we'll all head for New York in my transmitter. They entered a different realm of the lower area. Within the constant hum, he followed her to a side door behind the huge machines. Most of the noise faded when the door closed, and they rushed up the metal stairwell. She pointed to a gray door midway down the constricted hallway. Charlie gazed at the high concrete ceilings and shelving along the walls as Jamel set Alf on the floor. I remember that rara ship being rather large, Jamel. A rara ship measures 10 meters by 3 meters high. Let's give it a try, Alf. Field is localized. She pulled Charlie across the room and crouched behind the shelving. How does it feel to have the fate of millions hinging on your theory, Charlie? Millions? Alf produced a bright pink cluster arching across the stagnant air and whistling like a kettle at the boil. Static electricity covered Charlie's arms and hair. Color burst oozing from nowhere whipped around the room and then vanished into nothingness. Within a few minutes, a triangular black shadow formed within this colorful display. A long ship, black and tubular, came into view. Jamel clasped her hands. Good, very good. Tell me I'm dreaming, Jamel. Elf, go ahead, this is it. Elf emitted bold church bell tones as the ship's front door panel opened, and its white interior light shone across the darkened storage room. The high-energy readings and contamination worried her. Once Elf told her the readings had stabilized, she stood and moved into the opening. With a hopeful look in her eyes, she passed through the static-filled white-pink arc. Then she broke free and ran into the ship, but she quickly stepped back and covered her mouth as she retreated. Jamel, what is it? The skeletal remains of her two friends, still in gray jumpsuits, were frozen in the rarer ship's seats. They were probably performing their duties when they died. She tried to disguise her intense emotion. I didn't count on this. The continuing. It's an odd thing, Charlie. 
Jamel returned to the ghost-like ship, paused briefly near her friends, and then opened a side drawer. Taking the ship's tools, she loosened a rear panel. She had just removed the top cover when the ship lurched, and she nearly lost her balance. One of the dead men tumbled like a brittle, solid block against the sidewall and onto the floor. Again, the ship shuddered. Elf, can you hold this ship in place? We are in a very precarious situation. She had difficulty with the smaller attachments to the archive panels. Whole sections of the rarer ship faded and then returned. When the ship bucked like a wild horse, Charlie endured the disruption, but as she worked, he feared they would somehow be absorbed into the continuum. Jamal, you can't risk this. I have to! Debris fell from the ship's ceiling and the front panel sparted with smoke. Just rip it out of there! No, it will ruin the imprints! More oozing light flowed over the opening. Then the entire front section, including one of her friends, popped out of existence. The blackness around the ship spread like a fire through dry wood. Come on, it's all over. She slid out a reflective flat silver box. All of human history in my hands. Okay, now we get back to the hotel and to our buddy Langley. He stood as Jamal strapped Alf over her shoulder. But the heavy outside door smashed against the shelves, and the long-faced security guard glared at them. His low, gravelly voice seemed disjointed. I'll take that. Charlie pulled out his revolver and shouted, And I suggest you get the hell out of our way. I'll plug you if you don't move. The clatter confused the guard, and he covered his ears. He swung his hands as if he were swatting bugs, but his body slowly transformed. Jamal spoke in an almost inaudible voice. Avijis. The guard, a life form from another time and place, towered over them. A milky, translucent, pale green shell covered his nondescript face and cinderblock-sized hands. His head narrowed with embedded green eye discs, darting within an intricate red nerve network. They slid alongside the concrete wall. Charlie peeked around the corner and then popped the trigger. A brilliant white light blinded them as the force of the explosion toppled the storage shelves and threw them both back. Chunks of the ceiling and walls crashed down. Jamal peered over the fallen shelf. Charlie pushed up the shelf and poked his head through the smoldering debris. Are you kidding me? That was risky. The archives could have been ruined. Elf verified the inner workings were undamaged. With the archives intact, they rushed back to the stairwell. But as she opened the lower door, Robinson, Miller, and several other men ran into the turbine area. Charlie reversed direction and leaped back up the stairs near the storage room. He ripped open a door a few flights up and saw the lobby at the end of a narrow hall. They casually passed the receptionist as Charlie gave the turnstile wave. Then they burst into the warmer outside air. More workers, possibly Avijis, crossed the parking lot and Jamel pointed to the high chain-link fence near the trees. Charlie feared she might drop the archives and took Alf over his shoulder as he clawed the fence ahead of her. He quickly slid down the other side, and she handed the archives to him. She held his arm as she took the archives, and they fled to the safety of the woods. Then she pointed, That car! The glossy blue sedan spun its tires near the guard shack and headed across the parking lot toward the grass. She tucked the archives under her arm, and Charlie took her hand down the forested slope. The other guard went right over to that ford when we got here. Avijis. The 
The car slid across the grass and several tall men, some in white shirts, others in farmer's denim overalls, awkwardly crawled out of the Ford. A second vehicle, a faded green truck with a rattling engine, pulled beside the Ford. More men were loaded inside the wooden sideboard surrounding the truck bed. Charlie held Jamel's hand as they scrambled through the forest. He cocked his head as the Avigis climbed the fence. One of them at the top pointed something at them. A thin green beam ripped into several tree trunks and tore a smoky trail along the forest floor. Etor beams, cried Jamel. We have to get to Langley and leave. As Charlie moved up a small tree-lined knoll, he saw the river moving swiftly past the small field at the bottom. They crested the hill, slid down the slope into the field, and sprinted into the warm air toward the other woods to the left. More intense green light shot up and chewed up the grass and dirt. They dove forward and rolled toward the trees. Some of the larger trees were felled this time, and fires spread in the underbrush. He heard the falls as the massive river surged beyond the grassy brown bank. Again he turned, but as he ran, he saw movement through the woods. We need to kill them. Now that we have the archives, they'll kill us, yelled Jamel. They sat back and let us do the work. Unsure whether the Abijis were circling, Charlie grabbed her arm. I'm not going to sit by here and get plugged. Charlie, there's nine of them left, according to my... Come on! He led her to the side of the field where the land dipped and he dropped to his stomach. She settled in beside him, and he pointed his gun through the tall grass blades. Jamel moved Alf and the archives back and took out her own gun. They waited and watched the smoke rise in the woods back toward the plant. He gripped the gun when he heard a noise beyond the clearing. Four of them, three of them in white shirts and one in overalls, moved sideways down the hill. Get the guy in the overalls. Get one and you've got them all. Charlie did not fully understand what she meant as he aimed at the guy with the frizzy blonde hair and pulled the trigger. A great white flash flared and he shielded his eyes. He covered Jamel as the prodigious blast shook the grass-covered ground. Trees tumbled into the field and more brush caught fire as a massive warm and dusty wind pushed by them. Well, we just bumped off those gate crashers. She followed him down the steep bank. More etour beams from somewhere up in the woods cut the treetops. There's more of them. Run, Charlie, run! He paralleled the surging river. Less than a mile down the churning river, the water careened into a mighty phantasm over the Horseshoe Falls. He jumped over several open pools, following her as she ran. Let's head back along the river. About to answer, Charlie hopped over a large earthy chunk above the river but lost his footing. A bright green beam impacted below, scattering the dirt and the grass in a shrapnel spray. A burgeoning crack spread over the ground. The mound crumbled, and he slowly fell back toward the consuming Niagara. Jamel! She spun with Elf in the archives, but the bank quickly obscured his view, and he hit the cold water. Unimaginable, gurgling forces now took over, immobilizing his arms and yanking him below the river. Water entered his lungs and he gasped for air, and he bobbed back to the surface as if he were a chunk of wood. He fought to stay afloat, and his thoughts coalesced into an unthinkable horror of being dragged over the falls into the chasm below. As Once in a Lifetime comes to a frightening, spine-tingling, historic climax next week, Historic Climax next week, let me leave you with a quote from Nikola Tesla. 
One must be sane to think clearly, but one can think deeply and be quite insane. Hmm. Hope he wasn't including authors in that clip. Episode 5 will be long, but so much happens I dare say it won't drag along. I'm Robert P. Fitton, still pondering that quote. See you next time. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.